0: Alright, tonight's text, we are in uh, Genesis chapter 4, or th- uh, yeah, Genesis 4, I've got to reset here, okay, Genesis chapter 4 for tonight's text. So remember I said that everything we hate about the world today, everything we wish that was not in the world today goes back to Genesis 3, the, the, the fall of man, and of course, here to, to, tonight, we're going to be talking about the first murder that, that uh, the Bible records. So we'll, we'll get into that right now. All right. Verse, chapter 4 and verse 1. Here we go. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah... Also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. And called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. May God add his blessing in the reading of his word. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to teach us now. Instruct us, God. Convict us. Change us, Lord. I pray that none of us would leave here the same way we came in, but God, we'd be closer with you, changed by you. Lord, washed by your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, obviously, when we get to some of the longer genealogies in here, we're not going to read through all those. So uh, but today's genealogies I wanted to hit on. And actually, I'm going to deal with the last half of this passage first. Then we'll we'll actually get into the meat of Cain versus and Cain and Abel. But a couple of things I want to say just about Cain's genealogy. First of all, it's interesting because uh, what you're going to see in Genesis is, and, and throughout the Bible is we're tracking really the lineage of the Messiah. But we'll see branches going off, and, and Cain is one such branch. Cain, Cain uh, obviously kills Abel. Seth, Jesus Christ comes through the line of Seth, which we'll, we'll pick up, and you'll see Genesis will shift its, sorry, I've got to turn off my phone. It just beeped. Uh, we'll see that, uh, that Genesis will, will carry out characters and show you some of their descendants. But then we're going to, it will break off and it will focus on the one who the Messiah comes through. And that's a really important idea. And, and part of the whole reason for the genealogies in Scripture is just tracing the lineage of the Messiah all the way down to Jesus Christ. Notice that once Jesus Christ comes, we have no more lineage at that point. The Bible ends with all the, the so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so. So, but a couple things about, about uh, Cain's lineage. I, w- I want to point out about something about Lamech. Lamech is an interesting character because, of course, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like he's the first person in the Bible to be a polygamist. Now, it's the first one, at least, that the Bible shares about. And I want, you to, sh- I want to show something different because people say, oh, polygamy is in the Bible, so therefore the Bible supports it. There's a lot of things in the Bible. But that doesn't mean the Bible agrees with it, endorses it, or wants you to go and do it. Okay? God created Man and woman, and the two will leave their father and mother and cleave together, and that 's the relationship that God created. Polygamy is not the ideal relationship. And you might say, "Well, what about Jacob or what about the, the other uh, patriarchs who had multiple Abraham had multiple wives and that's not God endorsing it that's people being people and people doing things and twisting things and doing things that they They shouldn't do, but God in his forbearance for us, dealing with us in all of our messiness, getting us along to that point of Jesus Christ. So so don't think of that as something that is good or endorsed. Now, Lamech is interesting because he's the seventh one from Adam through the line of Cain. The seventh one from Adam. So we're talking the seventh generation from Adam uh, through the line of Cain. Now if we trace Seth's seventh son, the seventh seventh one from Adam through the line of Seth, we find Enoch, not to be confused with Enoch here, but Enoch, the one who walked with God and was no more. So here you have Cain's line, Lamech, just now he's got multiple wives and we see him twisting what God has done, changing what God has done for his own benefit. Okay, we we see a twisting of of reshaping of God's purposes for things. But where Seth is concerned, his son, seven from Adam, is the one who walked with God, was a friend of God, and who God raptured away. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting idea. And here's what I want to say about this, just in touching to you parents. It is so important, the example you set for your children in your household. Now, you might have a rebellious child that, that, that happens, and, and you keep praying for that child, but it is so important for you to set the example for your child, for, for you to say what's going to be tolerated in the household and what's not tolerated, not to do the whole thing where, hey, man, I just don't want to push them, and I want them to be able to discover what they want to believe or what they want to follow. I'll tell you right now, there's no such thing as being neutral in this world. Uh, there's no such thing as neutrality. Either either you're going to follow God or you're not. Either you're going to be righteous or you're not. You'll either be bent towards God or bent away from God. There's no such thing about neutrality. And trust me, the devil wants you to believe that you can be neutral, that your kids can just discover God on their own. But I'll tell you right now, you might as well be kicking them into the devil's arms versus leading them. In the, in the way that is everlasting, leading them in the way that is holy. So I want to encourage you parents right now with that because that was just one observation I saw with with the sons of Cain versus the sons of of, of Seth. So all right, let's go back to this story. And you guys can read, obviously there's little interesting things about the the father of all those who play the lyre in the pipe and and uh, those are interesting things. And I, I love how the Bible just gives you these little like, oh, by the way, so-and-so comes for that. And, and they're the ones who, who play instruments. And you're like, wait, can you give us a little more on that? But the Bible's not concerned with that. What the Bible's concerned with is Jesus Christ. So you get little touches on things like this. And you're like, I want to know more. But we're just not going to get any more. So on that one. So let's talk about Cain and Abel for a minute. There's some interesting things about this passage. And I'll tell you right now, anyone who's had a kid knows that uh, they didn't have to teach our kids to get angry. I, 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 I remember when we first had Elise, and um, we we actually were a little concerned when she turned three. Of course, we were this, we were rookie parents, and it was our first. But when she turned three, we were actually wondering, was there something psychologically wrong with her that we needed to take her to a counselor? Because something happens when they turn three, and you're like, what happened to my kid? I, I don't know if it was that way for your kids, but with mine, like, one day they were driving and Elise chucked a shoe at the back of Laura's head while driving. It was like, what? And, and she would just have these, like, crazy meltdowns. We were like, what's going on now? She's a sweetheart. But but uh, we were just, like, shocked by her. Of course, she's getting ready. She's kind of doing the teenage thing now, so we'll see how that works. But but uh, <laughs> I think you can handcuff your kids when they become teenagers, right? Is that legal? No? Oh, All yeah. right. Uh, so... But but we we don't teach our kids anger. Obviously, sometimes we respond in anger and they emulate what we do. But that's the, definitely we don't teach our kids to bite us, especially when they're first babies and they, they bite you just to like they, You know, when they're like biting you to be angry at you, and you're like, "What's up with that? I feed you, I take care of you. Why would you do this?" And and that's we just see the sin nature. So we see with Cain and Abel, there's a sin nature passed down. But there's also. A spiritual nature passed down, and, and we don't totally understand it. Of course, the, the, the narrative doesn't give us a lot of information, but clearly Cain and Abel both understood what it meant to worship God. They both understood to bring sacrifices to God. Now, they've been, they've been exiled from the garden. Adam and Eve have been ex- exited from the garden. They've been kicked out of the garden, and, and now they have the first one born is Cain, and, and uh, by the way, the Hebrew is very difficult here in this chapter because you're not really sure if he, she's saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or I've got, I've made a man just like the Lord. So we're not really sure what Eve is actually saying. To me, th- based on the narrative, I think this is a better translation. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, recognizing God's presence, because clearly Eve is not teaching her kids to resent God at this point. They know to bring sacrifices to God. But the author of the of, of Genesis, Moses, most likely, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wanted us to focus on something, and it's not even about murder. That's not what the focus is of this chapter. The focus is on worship and the right heart of worship, and that's really what we're going to be talking about tonight. So... Eve gives birth to Cain, then she gives birth to the younger brother Abel, and, and we see here that it's almost like Abel is already receiving the blessing, the younger sibling, which is a, a unique thing, and we see this theme kind of going through Genesis with Jacob, we see it, but here we see two brothers both bring sacrifices, offerings to the Lord. They both bring offerings, and, and I've, I've read a lot of different commentators, I've heard people preach so much about this different subject. Some have made it about bringing vegetables versus the lamb. You know, bringing an animal versus vegetables and saying, see, God doesn't like vegetarians. You know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) That has nothing to do with it. It's not about vegetables or fruit versus a lamb. It really comes down to the emphasis here that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. It's clearly about the heart of the offering. It's about the heart of our worship. That's an interesting thing because God doesn't say, hey, you just just worship however. You know, just it doesn't matter. You just worship and we can come in and just, whatever, God, I don't even care about. No, there are things that are holy and we're to recognize them as set apart. These are to the Lord. The communion table, the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, yes, it's just some matzah crackers, gluten-free matzah crackers, and some grape juice, but something happens when we take it as this ordinance, when we recognize that this is because Jesus' death for us on that cross, that it's his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, that that that's what those elements represent, and they become set apart. They're not just something ordinary, not something just regular, it's not just bread off the shelf, but it's something that is representative of God and his holiness, of God and his goodness, of God and his provision. That's what that represents. And and we're to take it with the right heart. Paul goes into great detail saying, hey, listen, some of you guys are coming to the Lord's table and you're coming with your sin. You're taking it in an unworthy manner. That's why you're sick and dying. Because you're coming, taking this in an unworthy manner and you're not doing it with the right heart. And that's why you Corinthians are having people suffer among you. That's why they're sick and dying among you. Wait, so I mean, our heart matters to God? Absolutely. Your heart is essential to God. Amazing that when a woman, when Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well, and the Samaritans were, they, <laughs> you stayed away from Samaria if you were a Jew. Samaritans were, were the worst. And here's why they were the worst. When Assyria first came in and, conquered northern Israel, and they were doing their thing, they, they, the Jews intermixed with the Assyrians, and they, they, they got married to them, and they started having kids, and that group of intermixed people were the, Samari- uh, the Samaritans. That's who they were. Those were the Samaritans, and all those from Samaria were the intermixed group of the Assyrians and the Jews, and God said, no, no, Jews, you're supposed to be, stay Jew, you're not supposed to intermix. You're not supposed to worship other gods. You're, you're supposed to stay Jew. Now, it's not about God having, not wanting to intermix relationships or anything like that. It's about keeping worship pure until the Messiah comes. That's what it was about. So the Samaritans, when the Jews came, were ca- taken into captivity, and they were in Babylon, and then finally they were released to, to go back to their homeland, the Samaritans came and said, hey, we'll help you build the temple. And the Jews said, uh, I don't know if you can. We got to ask the Lord about this. Because you guys are have been intermixed and you're no longer set apart. Now, listen, there was plenty of provision for someone of another race to become a Jew. There's plenty of provision for that in the Bible. But not to just intermix with other peoples. See, that that's what the problem was with with the Assyrians and and the Jews coming together. And so God said, No, they cannot touch the temple. They cannot build the temple. They cannot have a part in the temple. So, what did the Samaritans do? They said, Well, fine, forget you guys. Jacob worshiped over here. We're going to make this our place of worship, and we'll start sacrificing over here. So the Jews said, Yeah, whatever, that's false worship. But you guys do what you do. And, and then this rivalry started between the Jews and the Samaritans. So much so that a Jew would never come even near Samaria. They would just walk around it. And here Jesus says, hey, we're going through Samaria. And we're going to be there at noon. Not only are we, am I going to talk to a Samaritan, but it's going to be a woman. And it's going to be a woman who's living in adultery. One who's had five husbands and the guy she's with now isn't her husband. That's who I'm going to speak to. So Jesus did something so radical when he met with that woman. And that woman tried to get away and she, she tried to set out little red herrings for Jesus like just distract him and change the subject. And One of the things she questioned Jesus on was worship. And she said, hey, you Jews say we have to worship in the temple. That that's the only place we can worship. But, but we worship where our father Jacob sacrificed. And Jesus said, listen, a time is coming and now has come. That's what, that's what Jesus says when he's introducing a new thing. When he's saying the old ways, whoosh, they're changing. This is the new way. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers of God won't worship in the temple or on this hill. But they're going to worship in truth and spirit. They're going to worship in truth and spirit. You know what that means? That means that if we're going to worship God, one, we have to worship in truth. That means we have to know the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We have to only, the only way we can worship in a way that is acceptable to God is to come through Jesus Christ. That is it. That's the only provision God has given. You say, well, I, I love God. I, I want to worship him, I just don't like Jesus. Listen, you don't worship in truth. Because if you want to worship God, if you want to bring an offering that is acceptable to God. And by the way, when I say worship, let let me make sure we're clear on this. I'm not talking about singing songs. That's a part of our worship. I'm talking about even coming in, experiencing the word of God. I'm talking about every day as you live your life and go about your day. I'm talking about when you go on a hike and you're worshiping God. I'm talking about everything that you do before the Lord and unto the Lord. If you're going to worship God, it has to be done through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. The other aspect of it, it has to be done in spirit. Oh, that's an interesting thing. In spirit. Well, how do I worship in spirit? Because clearly I'm here in a physical body, and how do I worship in spirit? Maybe, Maybe I need to go into some meditative state or something. No, 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 no. That's not at all what that means. Jesus said, if anyone wants eternal life, they've got to be not only born of blood, or the water, but also of spirit. You've got to be born again. You have to be born anew. Worship in spirit and in truth. Well, as Jesus explained to this woman, so Cain offers his offering that was an offering, but it clearly wasn't with the right heart. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen someone, especially if you've had kids, do something. You ask him to do something, and you say, okay, now go back and do it with the right attitude. You know? You know like, And then it gets even worse, like, OK, attitude adjustment time. You know we, we all know what it's like for someone to go worship God with the wrong attitude. And, and that's probably what Cain did. He came to God and, and God said, "Hey, listen, notice the provision that God gives. He says, God tells him that, listen, if you, if you would just do the right thing, you'll be accepted." Now, Hebrews gives us a little more insight into this in this passage. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So, the author of Hebrews lets us know that, hey, listen, although Abel died, although he was murdered, It's clearly that he was the one who was acting in faith, that he was bringing this offering in faith from his heart. That's a lot to say about our worship. When we come to worship, when we come to sing, when when we're going about our daily routine, whatever the case is, are you bringing a heart acceptable to God or is there resentment going on in you? Something to ask yourself. You know, we've all had lots of pain, some cuts cut deep in this world. Sometimes that, those cuts or that pain or that rejection in this life bring about resentment in us towards God. Resentment towards the person that did it and then, of course, resentment towards God. And here's the challenge for you. That's why I think one of the reasons why Jesus tells us we got to forgive. We, we have to forgive because we've got to remove that resentment. We've got to bring it before God and say, here's my heart, God. I don't want to resent you anymore. I'm ready to worship you because I recognize your provision given to me. By faith, Abel offered this more acceptable sacrifice. Cain's response is interesting. Notice, notice that his, he, he responds with anger, and it's really twofold. It's anger at God and it's anger at his brother. Bo, bo, he's angry at both. It, rather than turning to God, which, you know, God always gives us provision. He always says, Turn towards me. If I stand at the door, and knock. If anyone opens the door, hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. God always gives us provision. But it's interesting because when we reject God's provision, we always end up more angry and bitter towards God. That, that, that's what I've seen in, in my time as, I, as I've interacted with people. The people that are most angry at God are the ones who most reject his provision in his goodness. God is good. God's not good. And, you know, they're angry at God. and That's where they turn. Not only do they turn in their anger against God, but then they turn in their anger towards man. Interesting that the Bible tells us that the anger of a man will not bring about the righteous life that God desires for us. Our anger will not bring about righteousness. Do You have an anger issue. I I used to have a big anger issue. Um, I I uh, you know I was talking about how our parents influence us and our parents set the standard and and I'll I'll never forget and this is me being transparent with you so I'm going to tell you something really embarrassing that you know when you 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 sin. And you don't want anybody to know about your sin because it's just plain embarrassing. It doesn't make sense. Well, I'm going to be transparent with you. My dad was uh, a hard man. Uh, and it, part of it was from what happened in Vietnam with him. And, uh, and so I remember that about the time that my sister was starting to get to the teenagers and stuff, we would fight a lot and stuff, and he would just lose it. And, and he would have this look. We knew that if he gave that look... Dad was gone. Dad had disappeared. And you better run for your life. And we would, we, I, <laughs> running down the street, whatever the case is, I know it's funny when you say it like it, but the fact is if dad got a hold of you, it would be awful. And we would say, we'd tell mom, mom, you got to talk to him. My mom would just kind of ignore it. And it was, it, was a, it was a terrible, kind of fearful way to live as a kid. and Because and, it wasn't also like, you might do something really little, and get in really big trouble. Or you might do something really big and nothing would happen. You're just like, I don't understand anything. So for me, it became about kind of hiding from my dad because of his anger. Well, I'll never forget when I first had kids uh, and and they started getting a little bit older, I would do that same face that my dad would do. And uh, I would get that. I wouldn't get get physical with my kids, but I would definitely get that same face. And I'd scare, well, actually prior to 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 that, we had uh, my sister in law who Megan, who does the VBS, she was living at our house at the time, and she had come to live with us and and i 'll never forget I was trying to talk to him about not throwing tomatoes down the garbage disposal or something like that because we had this uh, the house we were in had this terrible drain trap, and it would cause all sorts of problems if food was thrown down the garbage disposal and and, uh, and I think she kind of mocked me back like jokingly, but then I just lit a fuse in me, and I just like erupted and yelling or whatever. And then I just, I'll never forget how embarrassed I was. Here I am, spiritual guy, pastor guy, who just totally lost it. And uh, I, I remember going to my, my room and I, I went and asked for forgiveness for Megan. And I was so embarrassed by the whole thing. I would really embarrassed myself. I made a huge deal over tomatoes. <laughs> it was done. But I remember going to the word of the Lord and starting to memorize scripture on my anger. And, and I, I asked, Lord, Lord, I can't do this. I'm being like my dad. And still even after that, I would make the face of, the, the angry face. And my wife said, hey, listen, you're scaring the kids. Don't do that. And I was like, you know, you're right. Because you know the interesting thing about God? When he corrects us, have you, have you ever seen God take you and throw you up against a wall and just lay into you and yell at you? No, that's not what the Lord does, does he? What the Lord does is he's gentle with us, quiet with us, whispering with us. I mean, sometimes we have a, we're hard of hearing, and we'll put ourselves in a place where we're like, oh, crud, I'm, I'm up a creek right now without a paddle, and I need your help, Lord. I mean, we'll, we'll get ourselves there. But amazing how God's voice is that whisper calling us, that shepherd. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam, where are you? Notice here, the shepherd says, where's your brother Abel? calling out, getting Cain to confess that sin. Of course, Cain tries to lie at first. But God doesn't do that with us. He, he doesn't throw us up against the wall. And I realize that discipline for my kids, discipline for me is so that I will look more like Christ, that I'll, look, I'll, I'll do what is right. It's training, not, not about scaring me, not about making me fearful, but about making me more like Jesus. That's what discipline should be. And parents, I'll tell you right now, if you still have that opportunity to make sure that your discipline is in training your kids in righteousness, I encourage you to maybe shift. Say, okay, you know what? Dad's not going to do that anymore. Mom's not going to do that anymore. We're going to work on training you. So when our kids do wrong, we tell them what they do wrong. That doesn't mean my kids don't get spanking sometimes. They do. But but it's always with the benefit of them knowing what they've done. I'll, what, usually what I do is uh, I sit down with my kids and say, hey, here's what you did. Let's look at what God's word says about it. This is what God's word says. Now we've got to deal with the punishment aspect of this. But I'm always trying to teach my kids what they should do, not just what they, what they did wrong. I don't want to just, they don't need me to just tell them what I did wrong. So Cain says, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Interesting that, that uh, we are supposed to be like Christ. We are supposed to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Am I my brother's keeper? The word keeper really literally means shepherd. Am I my brother's shepherd? Am I supposed to be the one looking after my brother in, the, in that sense? And, and uh, he tries to just kind of skirt the question because God obviously knows what he's done. And, and there he is saying, oh, you know, I, I, it's not my responsibility. I read an interesting article uh, when I was uh, in Nepal last time, I you know I fly. When you fly into Nepal, Kathmandu, you pass right by Mount Everest, and and you, you see it usually coming in or going out. One of the two, if it's not too foggy, and it's kind of like, wow, there it is. It's Mount Everest. It's all the all the adventure starts here in Kathmandu, sort of thing. You can't really see it from the valley, the in the valley of Kathmandu. When I first got to Kathmandu, I'm like, where's Everest? I'm like, oh, you can't see here. It's too smoggy, and it's truly true. But um, when you see Everest, it, I, I, I like reading stories about Mount Everest. And um, it's interesting because 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary was the first one, him and Tenzing Nor- Norgay, climbed this peak. And they were the first ones to climb it. But by 2006, more than 2,700 people have climbed Everest. And, and it became a commercial, uh, a commercial hub. Uh, basically, people will spend between 60 and $90,000 to climb up this mountain. And, and for the most part, you can pay your way up the mountain. I mean, there's still a lot of death. In fact, there's been many, many deaths on, on the mountain. But the sad part is the result of this rush to the top. That's the sad part. Someone who's put their house up, they've, they've, they've come up with $90,000 so that they can they can climb Mount Everest. Uh, they've lost all their compassion, is, is what Ed Vister said. Ed Vister, who's climbed the, the peak many times, says that, this, that he's seen people who's, who have uh, on their way up, they're passing by someone coming down, and that person's ran out of oxygen. One such case was a, a guy named David Sharp who froze to death up there on the mountain. He made it to the top but hadn't, didn't have enough oxygen to get down. He's collapsed and he started dying, and there were people going up towards the top who saw him on the side who had oxygen, but they wouldn't share because they were trying to get to the top. They were trying to make it to the top. Man, am I my brother's keeper? It's a good question to ask. Edmund Hillary himself said, unfortunately, the attitude has produced disgust in many climbers. He said, on my expedition, there was no way you'd have left a man under a rock to die. That was the attitude of Edmund Hillary. Sad that when compassion leaves because of, Our monetary investment, our, I don't know, what makes a man worth more than an experience? Well, it should always be that way. Human life should be more valuable. And I I think a part of it is the eroding idea of who God is and who man is. That man is created in the image of God. If you remember, we talked about that in Genesis 1. Man was In the image of God, he created them male and female. Much different than the animals. Remember, Adam saw all the animals. He named all the animals. God brought all the animals before him. And there was not a helper suitable for him. You remember that in Genesis chapter 2? And, and there, there was, God was going to do this special creation so that Adam would understand how valuable a man is in God's size compared to the animals. And animals, by the way, are valuable. Jesus said that not a sparrow's head doesn't fall. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God knowing about it. In fact, Job tells us how God is the one who feeds the animals of the wild. God is the one who sees them in their birth cycles and so on. God is the one who's knowledgeable of all the animals. So animals are important, but man is even greater of greater importance. But here comes man's idea and man's philosophy, the theory of evolution. You know what the theory of evolution does? You're just an animal. Now, we when you ask people like, okay, if, who would you save, your enemy or a dog drowning? My dog. Would you save a stranger from drowning or your dog? My, my dog. I would say, probably save my dog. That's the attitude now when it comes to being your brother's keeper and having compassion. And I think we can learn a lot from this. When, when Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is absolutely, you are your brother's keeper. God, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Man. What a difference in the mindset of God. In fact, if you really want to get into this, think about this. God, here's what love is, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God-haters, while we were still in our sin, doing what we wanted to do, rejecting the truths of God, Jesus died for us. That is God's attitude, and our attitude should be the same. We are our brother's keeper. Do not buy into the world's philosophy that, that we're not our brother's keeper. We absolutely are. Going on with the story, let's look at in closing here about what um, Cain's response is. Notice Cain. It says, "Cain, here's what, what what's happened. Cain finally." God actually calls Cain out on it. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, notice what Cain's punishment is. One, the ground's no longer going to produce its fruit to you. It, it, you're cursed because of this. God, I'm, I'm not going to let this. Two, you're going into exile. You're going to become a wanderer. Now, for Cain, uh, being so close to Adam, you're not going to have a lot of civilization going on right now. <laughs> you're going out into exile. So that's where Cain's going, whoa, 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 I can't do this. Now, and we, we would look at this and go, well, why not the death penalty, God? I mean, this is really what he deserves. And But you got to understand, for, for Cain, the punishment is much worse to go be a wanderer and to live with the guilt, to live with what he's done for, for the rest of his life while he's eking out trying to do this. And so I think God's punishment is very fair with Cain, but it's also gracious. That's the amazing part about this, that we see God's grace even with Cain as he does this. So Cain says, my guilt is too great for me. Or um, Let me look here. He says, uh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, I want to say a couple words about this statement. This statement is interesting because it really, in Hebrew, it could mean my punishment is too great. Like, man, God, that's not fair. It could be, it could be that opinion. God, that's not fair. It's too great. I can't handle this kind of a punishment. Or it could be my, my, the, the guilt The the iniquity that I am carrying with me is too great for me. That's what it could be too. And and I kind of tend to think, I hope it's the latter. I don't know for sure. But I will say this, that as as Cain sees the brevity of his sin, as Cain really recognizes what he's done and sees the consequences for his sin, he's not only grieved, he also asks God for protection. There's God's graciousness saying, okay, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to let other people kill you. And also I want you to serve out this sentence that I'm giving you. But we see that God himself becomes the provision. Eve says at the end of this, she says um, to Seth... uh, <clears throat> Sorry, uh, if you, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. I think Eve is looking back to that promise as she's as they're being exiled from the garden, they're given that curse that through the offspring of Eve, through Eve's seed, we're gonna see Satan's hit, uh, crushed. Uh, so I think she might even think that maybe Abel or now Seth is going to be the fulfillment of that. I don't know. But what we do see is that that eventually through Seth, we have one who's actually strong enough to take our iniquity upon himself. That's, that's the key here of this whole story. I, and the, the one thing I want you to grab hold of tonight before you leave is that Jesus Christ is strong enough to take our iniquity upon himself. You see, in the Old Testament, when someone would bear their iniquity, the idea would be that the, the, the guilt, the weight of their sin is upon them. And, and so a priest would take upon the iniquity of the people and go make that offering, that sacrifice in the temple. The, the priest was temporarily taking on that iniquity for the people. But one, the high priest, Jesus Christ, uh, who, who comes before us, one who can make an offering that is greater, he takes the iniquity of us all upon himself. Listen, I wonder, have you let Jesus take your iniquity upon him? I'll tell you right now, that's God's provision for you. It's God's provision for the murderers, for the slanderers, for the God-haters, for the insolent, for the adulterers. It is God's provision for you. The iniquity of your guilt put on him, Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect. That is God's provision for you. Don't leave here without God's provision. Don't leave here not knowing that God has made a way for you to get rid of all your guilt, all that past history, all those things that you've done wrong against God and against others, God has taken upon himself on that cross. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't still have consequences in this life. Abel had to wander the earth. There's consequences for our sin, consequences for when we, when we do sinful things Sometimes it's separation, separation from family, separation from fellowship. There's all sorts of things. I, I think uh, the leper of today, you guys know what the lepers of today are? Child molesters. Those are the lepers of today. Th- those are the people that someone who's, who has molested a child or has some sort of sex offender, they are truly the lepers of today. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I mean, where do they go to church? I mean, I'd love to say, yeah, they should come here to this church, but we have a lot of kids here. Probably not a good idea if we're going to protect our kids, right? They're, they're unclean. Literally, they're just like a leper. They're, you you got to go find a place. And I, we should probably get some missionaries going here for, for uh, sex offender churches or something like that. I don't know. But, but you can't say, hey, come into this church, Right? I mean, if you're a parent, I hope you're agreeing with me on this. You might be like, well, I don't know. I like the idea. No, most, most of you are parents are like, yeah, we, we're cool with making sure. Yeah, we, if we have a sex offender come to our church, we say, listen, this isn't the church for you. We have a lot of kids here. We'll help. I've even gone before of calling different churches and seeing if they have room for them. But sometimes sin separates us from fellowship. It's a reality of the matter. Okay. Sometimes we can do a sin within a fellowship that separates us out of this fellowship for good. Pastors, sometimes pastors sin against their congregations. They can't just keep preaching. They can't just keep pastoring the congregation. Sin will separate us. It's a reality. But it doesn't change the, the consequences of the reality. The real situation doesn't change the gift of Jesus Christ. That's the important part. God's grace can still cover over. God's grace can still forgive. God's grace can still provide eternal life for that person. But sometimes our sin is going to carry consequences for the rest of our life. <laughs> but God is so good. God is so good. Not one who he receives will ever be lost. Not one. He is the good shepherd. So I want to I challenge you tonight. Don't leave here to, tonight without the provision of God's grace. He became our iniquity. He became sin who had no sin. It is Jesus Christ who died for us and took our burdens upon himself. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, that there's no guilt that we have that is too great to bear. Lord, you bore it all on that cross. On that cross of Calvary, you took every sin, every, every disobedience, every rebelliousness in me you nailed it to that cross saying, it is finished. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your provision. God, we pray, Lord, that we would seek you, that with hearts full of joy and set apart to you, we would bring offerings of worship. If you, if you haven't received that gift of provision from God, that you haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior, you just pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I'm ready to follow you. I confess all my sin before you, Lord. I need a Savior. I need you to come into my life. I need what you did for me on that cross. I'm ready to follow you.